Let's take our Bibles, please, and let's head over to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, if you're just joining with us, and this has uh, been one of your first times you're visiting with us, or uh, whatever the case may be, we're in a series that is talking about the end times, and we were doing it back in January and February. Then we took a break for our missions month and I'd like to return to it. This morning I'll be talking from Matthew 25. And as we go through this text, let me just start off very bluntly in saying I am not going to enjoy this message. I already preached it once earlier today. And quite frankly, this is not a fun message to preach at all. You can see by the nature of the topic what it is and what we'll be discussing and quite, quite frankly, in my opinion, anybody who, who really delights in preaching about hell, I question their sanity. Um, it's just not a fun topic. And yet it is a very critical, essential topic that we discuss because of the reality of it. In fact, if you haven't been with us, let me just do a little bit of rehearsing. And those of you who are with us, you remember some of this chart that we've been doing to get a sense of where we're at in the end time study. We are living in what we picture here, the church age. The time period since Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven, Pentecost happened, and up until Jesus Christ comes and takes us to heaven in what we call the rapture, where he will descend from heaven with a shout, with a command, with the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ, those who have already, who believers who have passed away, they will rise first. Then we who are alive shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We'll go back to heaven. And there we'll have what's called the Bema Seat Judgment. We talked about those items already. Sometime after the rapture, days, hours, weeks, months, years, I don't know. No one knows. You don't know. Then on the next event is going to be what's called the Tribulation. The Tribulation is a seven-year period predicted in the Bible that Jesus says is the worst time in all of human history. It begins when a world ruler from the Western Empire, the ancient, the realm of where the ancient Roman Empire was, he's called Antichrist in Scripture, where he will be leading a ten-nation confederacy. He will make some type of special treaty with the nation of Israel. Protection, provision, whatever is involved, we don't know in all those details. But he's going to make this treaty, and during the first three and a half years, it'll be really good for the Jews. He'll be protecting. He'll be helping. They're going to hear of rumors of wars. They're going to hear of famines. They're going to hear of world crises. But as a whole, they're doing okay. Then what happens is all of a sudden in the middle of the point, there's a, the, what I understand, Antichrist is going to suffer a deadly wound. He's going to come back. He's going to present himself as Messiah, a resurrected person, claim the power of God. And he will establish himself on the uh, on the um, temple seat, God's throne in Israel in a remade, renewed temple. And he's going to declare he's God. And he wants everybody in the world to worship him. And what will happen is for the next three and a half years, he'll implement a system where he is God on earth. You have to take a mark of 666. There's going to be all kinds of rules, regulations. And those who don't follow him, he's going to go after and he's going to attack. He's going to oppose. Many of the Jews will refuse. And so will other people who are getting born again during that time period. But in particular, what happens at this moment is Satan comes to this earth, cast out of heaven, and he knows he has three and a half years left. And he's going to wipe out, try to wipe out the Jews. If he can wipe out the Jews totally, then he's proven that God is a failure in keeping his promise to 
retain the Jews throughout all generations. And so it's going to be a really intense time. Now, during all of this, God is also judging, sending different plagues upon the earth to get people's attention, to try to uh, help people to understand that they are not invincible. And those plagues come in three different sets of seven plagues. And everything culminates in what's called the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon was when all the world's armies are gathered in conflict. They're also gathered around Jerusalem to wipe out the Jews to the final man. Again, Satan's behind this all. And when all of a sudden at the Battle of Armageddon, they see Jesus Christ literally coming out of heaven. And with him, all of his saints, these arrogant people, Antichrist and his followers, will turn their weapons upon Jesus Christ with the intent to destroy Jesus. And they're going to actually fire upon Jesus coming out of heaven. How arrogant, how stupid. Okay, but they'll make the attack. Jesus will stop everything with the word of his mouth. And he'll come down to planet earth and he'll take over planet earth. Then what happens? That's what we're picking up right now in this future story. We're in Matthew 25. We're going to be talking this morning about some of the aspect of what's described in Matthew 25, starting with verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and when did we feed you, or did we see you thirsty, or give you drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took you in, and, or naked, and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come unto you? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, you visited me not. Then shall they also answer and say, Lord... When saw we thee hungry, a thirst, stranger, naked, sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as he did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. What is happening here is the, the judgment that's called sheep goat judgment, determining who's going to go into the kingdom that Jesus is establishing, the heavenly kingdom on earth, and who's going to end up in hell. And as this judgment plays out, and we're going to see more about it in the weeks ahead, we want to pause and look at what, what's this hell like? What's this heaven like that he's talking about? Because people are going to have to make a choice to say which one they want to go to. Do you remember um, this, this statue? What's it called? The Thinker. Okay. Do you remember the story behind it? 
I shared this with you a few years back. Uh, there was a sculptor by the name of Roden, who in the 1800s, he was hired to be able to make a whole type of a wall panorama that would be sculpted out of stone and it would be put in a museum in, in France. It was to be like 20 feet high and wide. And he worked on it for 37 years and never finished it. Never ended up in that museum. And uh, his whole goal was to present what is called Dante's Divine Comedy. Dante had written this, this description of what hell is like. And what Rodin was trying to do is picture people need to think about their eternal destiny. They need to think about, is hell a place I want to risk going to? And so we would ask this question today, what do most people think about hell? If you were to describe what some of your friends have said about it, what kind of comments have you heard when you say, well, what do you think about hell? What have people said to you? It's not real? What did you say? It's a party time? My friends will be there. We can just open up a six-pack and, and not a six-pack of Coke, but we'll open up a six-pack and we'll, yeah. You've heard all those things. People that say it's not real. This is what's being preached in a lot of churches, even this morning in America. There's a theology that says universalism. Universalism says that nobody's going to end up in hell. Everybody ends up in heaven eventually. Well, maybe there's an exception to it, like a Hitler or somebody really, really off their rocker. But everybody else kind of goes to heaven. In fact, even the Catholic Church has a form of this, that those who don't end up in heaven, they end up in purgatory, and eventually they're going to burn their way out of purgatory and be able to go to heaven. If you pay enough money or you pray enough for your relatives, you can get them out sooner. That whole idea of universalism, nobody going to hell, it removes the threat the um, impetus of wondering and worrying about hell. In fact, to give you an idea where that is right now, here's a survey that's taken here a couple of years back by Lifeway Research, and they asked Americans as a whole what, you know, what they thought. Jesus is God. 61% of Americans said they agree with that. That's a sad number. Um, God accepts all type of worship and all types of religions. No matter, you know, all roads lead to Rome, therefore, whatever you believe. 65% say I agree with that. Uh, this question. Americans sin at times, but overall they're inherently good. Okay? Do you think there's a lot of people that thought this is true? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 65% said that's true. And you and I would say, for all have, yeah, even Americans. Okay. Um, there is a heaven. Do you think a good number? Up, down? Okay, yeah. 74% believe there's a heaven. Okay, question. There's a hell. Up, down. Okay. 58% believe in a hell. Okay. We, we want the good one. We don't want the bad one. Then the question goes, God will judge and some people will end up in hell. High, low. Okay. Now we drop down. Only 40% believe people end up in hell. Then we go to this one. Of those who claim to be evangelicals. Evangelicals are people who claim to be born again. Okay, they claim to be following the Bible. The question was asked, do you believe all people will eventually end up in heaven? Okay, it should read no at what percentage? 100%. Here's what it reads. 65% of, I'm sorry, um, 0% should be what it should read. Okay, nobody should say all people end up in hell. I was reading it worse. The, um, the do you believe people will end up in heaven? 65% of those who claim to be born again and be Bible believers believe everybody's going to end up in heaven one day. That's terrible. 
That's terrible theology. That's terrible. I, I wonder if we did a survey here, if any of you are thinking, wait a minute, you know, hell is not real, heaven is real, and we're all going to end up there one day. I have news for you. The Bible clearly states that not everyone will end up in heaven one day. That people will end up in hell. And then others say, well, that's not so bad because I'll have a time to party with my friends. And quite frankly, I don't believe there's a hell. This is it. Hell is my job. Hell is, you know, someplace here right now. Hell is my marriage. Hell is Washington, D.C. There's all kinds of comments made that it's, it's alive and well on planet Earth, and that's just not true. And here's where most people are. Even if it exists, and some people end up there, most people will end up saying, as for me, I'm not going to end up there. Okay, but what does the Bible say? And that's where we need to be in this study. We don't care about what a survey says. We care what does the Scripture say. What does the Bible teach us about heaven and hell? So this morning I want to talk about hell. This evening I want to begin talking about heaven and what the Bible says about that to give clarification, to make sure that you who are Bible believers and followers that you understand totally what the Scripture says. Hell is number one, based on this passage we just read. Number one, it's an actual place. It's a real place. It is It is. It is an absolute certainty that it is around. In fact, let's just do this. Jesus spoke of it. Look at the text already. Look in verse 30, 41, and 46. Jesus made comments about it. He described it. He called it an everlasting fire. He's making it clear that some people end up there. He equated the reality that there is a heaven, there is a hell. If you don't have a heaven, you don't have a hell. And so Jesus himself, he believes. In fact, he spoke about hell more than any other Bible character. In fact, the Bible in the New Testament speaks more about hell than it does heaven. And we've given you some of the statistics. Some of the comments by Jesus through just one gospel, just the gospel of Matthew. Here's what he says. Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is danger of hellfire. Jesus says that some shall be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said, fear not them that can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell or Gehenna. Gehenna is a term Jesus used 11 or 12 times in the New Testament. Gehenna, do you remember what it was? There was a place that was called Gehenna when Jesus was ministering. What was it? Yeah, it was a garbage pit. It was outside of Jerusalem, and it was in the ravine down below, and it was called Gehenna, and it was the idea that this is where all the garbage went, and then there was perpetual burning and burning up the garbage. Also, they put certain bodies in there. People who were criminals, people who's, who weren't claimed when they died, paupers, whatever, their bodies would be cast into this dump, and again, there would be that burning, and there would be where the worm dies not. There was, it was a place of stench and corruption that was outside the city of Jerusalem. It was Gehenna. Jesus compared Gehenna to what he pictures hell as. He went further, and he says, and again, this is just one, one uh, book of the Bible. He makes comment that his angels are going to go forth, gather people, and some shall cast into the furnace of fire. He made comment in further on that those shall be cast into the furnace of fire, where there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Further on, he says, if your right hand or, your, or if your hand or your foot offend you, it is better enter into life maimed and halt than to have both hands, both feet, and be cast into everlasting fire. He talks about your eyes, the same thing. It's better to be 
maimed, in other words, to take some really drastic measure to change rather than end up in hell. So we know that hell is a real place for several reasons. We know Jesus believed it. So if we're going to deny hell, you're denying Jesus. You're questioning him as an authority, as somebody who's perfect, as God telling us the truth and not trying to deceive us. We know that the apostles considered it a real place multiple times in the New Testament that they are referring to it. In fact, it's mentioned 234 times in the New Testament alone. Going throughout the Bible, the, hell, the idea of hell is 10 times more mentioned ten times more than heaven is mentioned. So it's a theme throughout the Bible that there is a hell, which makes perfect sense because there is a punishment. There is consequences for sin. We understand that. We know, we know that innately. We know that there's a right and wrong. We have a conscience. We know that if we do wrong, there's going to be some consequence. Well, the Word of God talks about it. The Word of God makes it very clear that the wages of sin is... Okay, there's a consequence. We know that the Word of God says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's gonna, it's going to come back to him. We know this from the book of Romans. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God's rules for a moral code demand that there's, a moral, there's a, some type of punishment for those who violate it. We understand that. We know that. And when we look at some of the terms that Jesus used about this punishment, it tells us that the punishment is severe. For instance, God so loved the world and he sent his son so that the world would not perish has an idea of something really drastic. The idea of whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved from something very serious. Those who are not born again. Jesus came to seek those who are lost. It isn't, it isn't something minor. The whole concept of scripture is if you sin, there's a consequence and that eternal consequence is really, really something bad. He t- describes it, calls it hell. That fits with what happened to Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus did not die for his own sins. Jesus was sinless, innocent. The punishment that he took was not for what he had done wrong, but, okay, he became sin for us, he who knew no sin, okay? So he took our punishment. Well, think about how he suffered. Okay, what he was suffering while he was on hell, it talks about Christ dying for the ungodly, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Being now justified in his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. God's wrath, God's anger, God's so offended by sin that the consequence is something really, really serious that brings out wrath, that brings out judgment in hell like hell. It's, it's, it, again, the reason people minimize hell is they minimize the holiness of God. Okay? If, if you erase the holiness of God, then there is no great punishment. But if you understand that God is so holy, that he is so perfect, that he is so offended by lying, disobedience to parents, cheating, adultery, that that stealing, all of those, that, those moral principles he established, he is so offended by them that he is allowing a period of grace 
for right now, but eventually his wrath will be poured out. And it was poured out on Jesus Christ because our sin makes us enemies with God. When we were enemies, we are reconciled through Jesus Christ. But as enemies, if we don't have Christ's forgiveness, we're going to experience God's total warfare, God's total you know, attack being hell, his wrath upon us. Here's what Isaiah described Jesus went through. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed is the idea for our iniquities. And so by looking at what Christ went through, that gives us a little bit of an indication. His serious sufferings, that's how God feels about sin. That is how bad hell will be. It is that something that even God turned against his son who took our sin. And so we have all of this that's describing, that tells us and helps us to understand hell is a real place. Now some of you sit here and say, well, if it's real, then where is it? Where is it? Okay. If it's real, we should be able to see it. If it's real, you know, I won't believe it exists unless I can see it. Well, there's a lot of things you don't see that, that are real. Okay. In, in, this, in this place, there's a lot of places I have not seen. I have never seen Texas. Does that mean Texas is not real? Yeah, you, know, you you do this with all kinds of places that I you some of you have seen these, but some of us like me, I took places that I've never seen. I've never seen any of these places. I've never been to some of these places. Does that mean those places don't exist just because I didn't see them? How foolish for me to make that statement because I didn't see it. It doesn't exist. I can't see it now. It's not real. Well, that's as foolish as saying I don't believe in hell because he can't see it. You look at these places and you know that they're real. There's evidences. There's people who have testified of them. People who know. You know. Look back in history. None of us have seen the Roman Empire, but we know it happened. None of us have seen ancient Babylon, but we know it existed. There's evidences. There's, there's indications. So in the scriptures we have evidences by the moral law because of the idea of consequences that happen because of the moral code, because of the statement by people, because of the stories that we have accounts of people who are real people who are there. We have all kinds of, we have all kinds of evidences that hell is real. Um, for instance, none of you, I don't think, I, I can't imagine a single one of you ever visiting Genola, Minnesota. Any of you ever see Genola, Minnesota? Okay. Ono is small. Genola is smaller. Okay. And you say, oh no, there can't be something smaller. There is. Genola, when I was growing up, was about a half mile from a house. Genola had one gas station, one grocery store, and two bars. Okay. Now, since I've been an adult, about the last time I drove through Genola, maybe 10 years ago, the grocery store is closed. The gas station is closed, and two more bars have opened up. So Genola is a place that you know, is four bars. How do you know it's real? Because you're, you're believing what I'm telling you, and because I'm an eyewitness to Genola. Not the four bars, but what it used to be. Okay. <laughs> Okay, and you're taking my word because I was an eyewitness. I saw it. I walked through it. I lived there. I did pranks there. I you know, spent years in that region. So you believe me. Most of you do. Okay, you believe me because I'm giving you a verifiable witness. Jesus Christ gives verifiable witness. He saw hell. 
He visited it. He knew what it was about even before he came to this earth. Jesus knew of hell. We believe his witness. Hell is a real place. But you say, well, exactly where is it? Well, it's not where you want to take a plane ticket to. Okay, it's not a place you want to go and spend vacation in. It's not a place you want, you can. Okay, but here's what I know from Scripture. And I can't go any, here's what Scripture says and I can just stop right there with it. Okay, when we look at Scripture, oh, I know what I was getting at here. There are many spiritual things that you don't see in the spiritual realm. You don't see God, but you know he exists. You have never seen Jesus Christ in the flesh, but you accept that he exists. You have never seen heaven, but you accept it's real. You have never seen angels. Whoops, that one I've done the same thing. You don't see angels. They're not visible, but we know that they interact. They're near us. They're around us, and so we accept the real. So just because something's in the spiritual realm doesn't mean it doesn't exist. They do exist, though we can't touch them, feel them, experience them physically. They are real, and they're really happening right now. Well, the same thing is true with hell. And we say, okay, exactly where it is. I can't get there. I can't visit it. But here's what I know from scriptures. Whenever hell is mentioned in scriptures, it's always with a downward look. Somewhere below the planet earth. I, I don't mean all the way down on the other side of the world so China is hell. That's not what I mean. Okay. We're saying somewhere with the idea that it's earth, somewhere within earth is the indication that this spiritual place coexists with the physical in that direction. The reason we say that is passages like this. Jonah was in the belly of the well, so shall the Son of Man be three days in the heart of the earth. Now some of you are going to say, well, that doesn't mean he went to hell. That's just talking about he went to a grave. And the grave was the heart of the earth. No. No, you're mistaken. Okay? Because we have other scriptures that tell us that when he went to the heart of the earth, he went beyond the grave. We'll be looking at this more in depth tonight. But there's a passage that tells us that when he went there, he preached to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey God when God's patience waited for them during the days of Noah. And so when he went to the heart of the earth, he was interacting with other, other souls of individuals who had in previous generations reject, rejected God's provision. That wasn't his grave. That was somewhere larger, bigger, where more spirits and souls were that there was interaction. In fact, Ephesians describes it this way. It talks about Jesus was the first to ascend and open up heaven. In that same text, also he descended first into the lower parts of the earth. And then it says, he that descended is the same that ascended up far above all the heavens to what we know as heaven today that's somewhere up there. And so we get this clear indication, heaven's that direction, um, hell's that direction, heaven's that direction. Okay, other passages, if we were to go through several, and these are just a handful of passages that talk about hell and give you the idea that it's lower, it's underneath us, it's a spiritual place somewhere this direction. That's the best I can tell you, okay, that I know. Somewhere where Satan's going to eventually be cast into the bottomless pit, wherever that is. And so direction, place, it's an actual place. It, Jesus believed it. It's down this direction. Here's a question that someone asked, and um, I just got into a conversation three weeks ago with an individual that said, well, is hell only something in the future? Well, according to Matthew chapter 25, it is future. 
Okay, it's talked in this passage as in the future after the tribulation, Jesus is going to cast some into hell and some are going into the kingdom. So it's future. But if we remember what we just read a few moments ago, verses I put up here. Jesus during his lifetime, he talked about hell as being a present reality, a threat. You want to cut off your hand, you want to cut off your eye rather than end up going into hell. That was a present threat. And so hell is back here in Jesus' day. Hell is up there in the future time. In fact, Jesus gave a lengthy account of hell, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I appreciate you saying with me. Jump to Luke chapter 16, please. In Luke 16, Jesus is describing and gives a real life example of what's happening while he's preaching of what's happening in hell. Some of you might say, well, this is a parable. He never describes it as a parable, which normally he did. He would say the parable means this or whatever. He didn't do that in this passage. And never in a parable does he use proper names. This account, he uses the name Lazarus, a proper name. So I'm assuming then what that means is this is not a parable. This is not a made-up story. This is a real story with real people that Jesus has names to. And he's telling what happened to a man called Lazarus. It says in verse 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen who fared sumptuously every day. In other words, he went to Shady Maple every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. What's that? I'll talk about tonight. The rich man also died, was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received many good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted, you are tormented. And besides... Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us from you. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may tell them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses, they have prophets, let them hear them. He said, No, 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 Father Abraham. If one went unto them from the dead, then they will repent. And Abraham responds, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one would rise from the dead. And so Jesus gives us a lot of details about hell with the idea that it was, it was happening when he was speaking. It's happening. Lazarus is there right now. The rich man is there right now. So what we have is it's in the past, it's in the future, and it's been around for a long time. Therefore, it's safe to assume that it's existing as everlasting fire and continuing, it's here right now. It's a reality. But not only is it an actual place, it's an awful place. It's an awful place. How do I know that? The words that Jesus used in Matthew 25. He said, those of you who are on my left, those of you who are on my right, those of you on the left, you know, you're going to be cast into outer darkness, he calls it, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. By, by the way, weeping and gnashing has that idea, does it not? Weeping and gnashing is 
like when you hit your this nail, not the real nail that you're trying to pound in, but when you hit this nail, you gnashing of teeth. Okay, there's real pain that's there. It's everlasting punishment. It's everlasting fire. And, and again, we remind you that he said other words like hellfire, outer darkness. There shall be weeping, gnashing of teeth. That there shall be wailing, gnashing of teeth, a furnace of fire. So Jesus is using these descriptive terms that help us to conclude that as he is describing this place, he's warning us about it that he's saying this place is horrible. It's a place of punishment. It's not a place of parties. It's not a place of pleasure. It's a place of punishment. It's a place that there's a lot of pain, torments, weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's a place that there's unquenchable fire, like Gehenna. It just burns and burns and burns and burns, which would lead us to the idea that there's a stench that is unpleasant there. And, and for those of you who say, well, wait a minute, you know, we, how, we won't feel. Uh-uh. Did you remember the story we just read? Lazarus, in his spirit, he had fingers and tongues and lips, and he could have full sensation of his surroundings. And he says, there's just, just a little, just a tip of, tip his, put his finger and get me just a, a dipping of water. In the spiritual realm, we maintain this type of composure. We have sensations, we have thoughts, we have memories, we have ability to converse. You're a spirit with a body, you're not a body with a spirit. The main you can still function without your body and will function. And so the the real you will still smell, you'll still feel. Those who go there, it's a made up word, I know. There is no word, it's grossness. But it's gross. Where there's corruption, where there's outer darkness, as I was telling the earlier crowd, when you think of darkness, where it's just pitch black, black darkness, and it's like this, what is a kid's response? How do, how do kids respond to pure darkness? Fear. Okay, what about older kids? What about adult kids? Do we still get the willies out of darkness? I do. When I'm here in this building and it's dark, we, I, was, I was telling you, crowd, we have doors that have gotten old that sometimes when the doors close, those clips don't latch all the time. So the door props just a little bit by that latch not being so, giving way so easy. And so you can walk around this building and you might walk through another hallway and when you open the door, all of a sudden you're sucking air and it pulls the other door shut. So there's times when I'm walking through a building and I'm of, of the mindset that I'm cheap, we'll leave lights off, and I'm walking through and I open a door and all of a sudden that door way down there just closed. There must be, my assumption, there must be somebody else in this building. And it gives me the willies and in all my bravado I head straight back to my office, lock the door, and stay until somebody else shows up. <laughs> so isolation, darkness. How does that work where there's fire and there's darkness? Science has already answered that that takes place. That's already in some realms. There's screaming. There's not this idea of laughter and joy and hee hee ha ha. Hell is described as a place of no freedom, no movement. Can you imagine being bound and it's going on and on and and there's no relief? You know, you and I, when when we have a toothache and it bothers us through the night, we can get the aspirin. Or when dawn comes, we can get to a dentist. But for those in hell, there's no aspirin. There, there's, no, there's no medical relief. 
It's just on and on and on. For those who say, my job is so horrible, it's so awful, it's like hell on earth. You can quit it. You can stop it. For those who say, you know, I, I'm, I'm in, a, in a, um, a neighborhood that is so awful, it's so bad, and everything's going so wrong, I feel like I'm being surrounded by all kinds of demons in my neighborhood. You can move. In hell, you can't. It's just perpetual that it goes on without relief. And then you have the memories of sitting in a church service and having heard the gospel. I wish I could have. And you can't go back and undo it. And then you think about it, you know, that unending, not just the pain, but just that idea that it's described as eternal. Now, for those of you who choose the new modern theology that is being propagated in churches like ours, there's a new theology that's coming out that says hell is only going to last for a short time. And then you're going to be annihilated. You're going to be wiped out because there's no eternal punishment. Um, then there's no eternal heaven. The same everlasting is used for eternal kingdom. How can heaven be called eternal and hell be called eternal with the same word but one only means temporary. They're both meaning, eternal means eternal. It just means going on and on and on. That it doesn't stop. And you can't get out of there. It's inescapable. You want to come to this side, to that side? You can't, Lazarus. You can't get out of there. This is, the great gulf is fixed. Evangelist Barrington worked in Chicago and he would do jail ministries and even prison ministries. And he talked about a time that he went into a jail and he was talking, had a church service there. And, at the, and he saw one young man there who was really, really troubled, didn't listen real well. And afterwards, he watched where that guy went to a cell. He went to that young man's cell. And he got in there and started talking to the young man, talking about Jesus. And the young man said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I'm just too upset. Well, can you tell me why you're so upset? I can help you. I'm just so upset. You can't help me. You can't help me. Nobody can help me. And the young man went on to explain. He was in this jail as a holding, uh, holding cell. He was going to be transferred the next day to Joliet State Penitentiary. And he was going to serve in the penitentiary for seven years. And the young man, as he mentioned, seven years, all of a sudden he went into his cacophony of just wailing. Seven years! I'm going to be in prison for seven years! Seven long years! It's a lifetime. I'm going to be there for seven years. Barrington tried to talk to him. All the young man would say is seven years, seven years. So Barrington left and he said as he was walking down the hallway, he could hear that guy from the cell keeping on getting louder and louder. Seven years, seven years. Seven years is such a brief time compared to eternity in hell. It's just, it's minuscule. And then we have this, this is the worst part of hell. The absolute worst part you're separated from God. You do realize this, don't you? That even unsaved people, even unbelievers enjoy blessings from God right now. Yes? No? Yeah, they have life. They have air. They have water. They have food. Those are blessings from God. All good and perfect things come down from the Father in heaven. And so even people who are not believers at this point, those individuals have blessings of God. When people end up in hell, that's it to all blessings. They have... They don't even have the crumbs of blessings that fall upon you and then they get the residual. There's nothing in hell. There's nothing. The wages of sin is 
death, separation. When we die physically, our spirits separate from our bodies. When we talk eternal separation, it's eternally separated from God, where there is no answer prayer. There is no blessings. There's not even overflow of blessings to, uh, that come from other people. The only thing that resides on a person who refuses to believe and ends up in hell, the wrath of God abides on him over and over and over and over and over and over. Where Jesus experienced your hell, where he was separated from the Father, where he agonized and cried, My God! My God! Why have you... And he was separated from the Father. First time in his existence, he and the Father, no communion, no, no nothing. It was resolved because at the very end he says, Father, into the hands I commend my spirit. First and only time in Scripture, my God, my God. There wasn't an intimacy. Jesus experienced it. You want a passage that clearly states this? Go and mark this one. Second Thessalonians. As we wind down here, just run, jump over to Second Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is, the, woo, what a passage that clearly defines what hell is all about. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay, now we're talking about that judgment of Matthew 25. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Everything we just said, everlasting. Away from the blessings of God. They are going to feel an ongoing destruction inflaming vengeance. It's just, it's a horrible situation. It's an awful situation. Scripture says hell is actual. It's real. Scripture says hell is an awful place. It's an avoidable place. You don't have to go there. The reason that I say that is Jesus makes it clear, Matthew 25. He never intended people to go to hell. It says in this passage, hell was prepared for Satan and his demons. By the way, can I interject something real quickly here? Hollywood's got it all wrong. Hollywood pictures hell as a place where Satan is in charge and he is controlling things and he is enjoying it. That is not true. Hell is a place of punishment for the devil. It's a place of bondage for the devil. He's never been there. He will end up there eventually. Praise God he ends up there and deserves to end up there. But hell is not a place where Satan's going to have a ball. Satan's going to be punished there. It was designed for him. It was designed for punishment of the greatest evil that's ever existed. For people to go there, they're trespassing to a, to a punishment that was meant for Satan. And this passage makes it clear what God did prepare from foundations past. He prepared a kingdom. And a, a garden of Eden on earth that was going to be his kingdom. That he's going to implement in the future, which again we're going to talk and describe starting this evening what that involves. 
And that's what God has prepared. That's what God planned. That's exactly why this passage complements what is said by Peter when he says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not doing this. God is not in heaven flipping a coin to determine which of you end up in heaven, which of us end up in hell. God is not willing that any of us. He's prepared places just the opposite for us. And so this text makes it very clear that some people will end up in hell, some people will end up in heaven, not because God is choosing, but because they chose. Their choice is is going to be revealed by evidences. This is a trial. This is a judgment. And when you have a trial, there's evidences presented to indicate guilt or innocence. And in the trial that takes place, he's going to say, here's how you treated other people during the tribulation. Here's how you responded to the Jews who were being attacked by Antichrist. Those of you who are alive, and I'm making this judgment now, heaven or hell, you individuals, I'm going to know whether you believed or didn't believe based on when you had a choice. Did you side with Antichrist or did you side with those who were being tortured because they followed me? Who did you align yourself with? Who did you feed? Who did you clothe? Who did you visit? Did you take a stand for the Jews and the believers and associate with them or did you go along with Antichrist? And so this judgment is giving the evidences that people in that time period will have made a choice. A choice of following Christ or a choice of following Antichrist. And so when we come to this, it comes down for you and me to pause and do our own thinking about eternity. As we look at the facts laid out, we haven't developed the fact of heaven, we'll do that later. But as we look at the facts and we peer down like the thinker did in Rodin's sculpture and we evaluate what's happening come judgment day, what are you going to do? Which one are you going to choose? If you're going to choose that hell, I, I don't believe it. It's going to be a party time, despite what you said. I'm really not scared. Then do nothing. Just continue what you're doing. The reason I say that is, you're a sinner already. All of us have sinned. Every single one of us has sinned. And the wages of sin is going to be eventually hell. So you don't have to change because you are already got a ticket to hell. You already have a spot reserved for you because you've chosen to sin. Like I have chosen to sin. Like every one of us have chosen to sin. But you who continue to sin and have no response towards the gospel, you need to understand that, and this was me. This was me at 16 years of age. This was every one of us at some point in our life. We were condemned to hell already. Since we were sinners, we already had the condemnation that we deserve to go to hell. If we get a wage, a payment for what we deserve, every one of us right now will end up in hell. There's not a one of us who is good enough to get into heaven by ourselves. We would end up in hell. So with that in mind, if you want to go to hell, do nothing. If you choose to say, okay, I don't want to perish, well then you got to do something. You got to respond to what God did. God sent his son into the world so you would not perish. So what do you do? What do you do? How do you respond to him? 
He came that you might be saved. Here's what you need to do. One, you need to repent. We had somebody visit our service here a few months back that they said repentance, turning away from sin, regretting sin, remorse, inner, inner as well as outer reaction to say, I don't want to continue doing what I've been doing. I want to change. They said that it's never found in Scripture that there isn't an idea of repentance. Really? What Bible are you reading? Okay. Repent and believe the gospel. I say, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. The Lord is not willing and desirous that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance is in the Bible. People need to turn from sin. They need to turn to the Lord and saying, basically, I am so sorry that I have sinned against you. Then what do you do? Then what do you do? You need to accept God's gift of salvation. Salvation is not something you earn. It is something that God gives you purely as a gift. None of us deserves it. And that gift is eternal life. How do I get it? What do I do? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to personally pray and ask Jesus to forgive you personally of the sins you have committed and to give you the eternal life he bought by dying on the cross for you. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven whereby you get saved. If any of you dare, dare stand before God one day and you say, Jesus, I should get into heaven because I'm a Baptist, you're going to end up in hell. Nobody gets into heaven because they're a Baptist. If, if I, I would be an absolute fool to go against the Word of God and say, I deserve to get into heaven because I was a pastor. There's no other title, there's no other name to get into heaven than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by Him. And so there's a choice you got to make. Are you going to repent and ask Jesus to be your Savior and trust in Him? Forget the baptism. Forget going to church. Forget all those things. They're good. There's a place. But after you accept Christ as your Savior, are you willing to do that? Or are you going to trust in yourself? Just take your risk with your church, your baptism. There's a gal that, uh, true story, this Jan Davis, she was one of those individuals that for a career she did parachuting. She was a stunt woman in several movies and so she was famous. She also got into not only skydiving in parachuting, she got into what's called base jumping. You familiar with that? It's where you go on a cliff and you, okay, you jump off and then you take your parachute and you and so she's done it several times and she was, she was with groups and did over 70 different times that she base jumped. Well, in 99, she joined a group of base jumpers that went to Yosemite uh, National Park and they did a protest. Their protest, at the, at the time the national parks would not let you base jump off their mountains. And so they were going to protest with the idea that it is safe 
nothing happens. Nothing can go wrong when you jump off a mountain. And so they were going to show this. And so they formed this protest group and they knew they would get arrested when they came to the bottom. They had the TV cameras all there. They, it was all publicized. And um, she was one of those group that she was going to jump and they knew they'd get arrested at the bottom. Their, all their equipment would get confiscated. But then they'd be able to go to court and they'd be able to fight, you know, improve the safety of base jumping in court and maybe get the rules changed. So they get there that day, and she doesn't want to lose her one outfit that she's used to using. And so she borrows somebody else's outfit that she had just met there on that day. And so she gets to her thing, and she leaps off, and her husband down below, as he watches her fall like a rock, he says, I told her she should have wore her own shoot. I told her she should have wore her own shoot. She should have wore her own shoot. Okay. Because the shoot that she, was, that she was wearing, the rip cord was in a totally different spot than what she was used to. And as a result, let's just say she didn't get arrested. Okay? She trusted the wrong thing. People who trust in something that looks, you know, that is close to, that's not going to be good enough. It's Jesus you need to trust in. You need to trust in Jesus. So we bring it all together and say, okay, what are we going to do with this? Okay, number one, if you are not born again, if you are not sure that you are headed for heaven, if you do not know, you don't recall a time, a moment, you don't remember, young person. You, you say, well, mom and dad told me I did it when I was a little, but I don't remember, I'm just not sure. Or you're here today, you're visiting, you're watching, and you say, I don't know for sure. You need to get saved. You need to get saved by repenting of your sin and calling upon Jesus. In fact, as we're going to sing a song at the end, those of you who are here, if you are not sure and you say, can somebody show me what I need to pray, we're going to have staff go to that door right there. And while we sing a song in closing, feel free to go and talk with them. They'll take you in a private area. They'll talk and they'll show you how to pray to get saved. Now, if many of you who have done that, okay, and many of you are here, the majority of those in our church, you say, okay, I did that, I prayed, I, I got saved at some time. Then you and I need to remember something. We get busy with a lot of things, and a lot of things are good. But we need to remember our primary task of glorifying God and, and serving Him includes fighting the big battle. The big battle for us right now is not you're going you're gonna to start throwing hymn books if they were in the pew. The big battle is not recovering America. The culture war is going to continue this direction. As much as I don't want it to, the Bible predicts in the latter days things shall get worse and worse. We want to make an impact. We want to slow it down. But the reality is it's going to go down the tubes. Our big battle is supposed to be winning souls, getting people to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Because even if we could churn around society, that doesn't mean individuals have turned around. Individuals need to repent. They need to be converted. So we need to focus on the big battle, guys. The big battle of getting out the gospel, talking to your friends, your family, your neighbors. I can't help but think this. If you're truly born again, and I am, I've accepted Christ, many of you have too. 
when I do a sermon like this, a study like this, I can't help but just to pause and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that I am not headed for this place anymore. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for letting me hear the gospel. Somebody coming to me. Somebody sharing with me. Thank you, Lord, for hearing when I prayed to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saving my soul. As we pray to the Lord this morning, join me as we do it with song. Some thank the Lord for friends and home, for mercy sure and sweet. But I would thank Him for His grace. In prayer I would repeat. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free. I trust in him from day today I prove his saving grace by this song of praise to him until I see his face thank you Lord for saving my soul Thank you, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you. We appreciate you for your salvation. Amen.